0: This is an ABC podcast. So we ended up sponsoring a family of three and for that we needed $24,000 Canadian.
1: So basically, yeah, they provided housing for us and they provided also like uh, support for a whole year and they were just kind people.
0: Yeah, our community was really proud. The family, they excelled.
2: Should Australia adopt Canada's private sponsorship program for refugees? Hi, Damien Carrick with you. Welcome to the Law Report. First, a former Australian spy known only as Witness K has avoided going to jail. Last Friday, a Canberra magistrate gave Witness K a three month suspended sentence for telling the world that the Australian government spied on the government of Timor Leste during negotiations over how to divide the oil and gas resources in the Timor Strait. Kieran Pender, a senior lawyer with the Human Rights Law Centre, believes the sentencing of Witness K reveals fundamental flaws in our whistleblower protection legislation.
3: Witness K was a former intelligence officer in the Australian Intelligence Community. Uh, he was charged with a conspiracy to breach a provision in the Intelligence Services Act, which prevents the disclosure of intelligence information. We don't know all that much about the broader context. Uh, a lot of this prosecution has been shrouded in secrecy. But what we do know was that Witness K was a client of Bernard Cleary, a very well-respected Canberra lawyer. Uh, He went to Bernard following approval from the Inspector General for Intelligence to go to Bernard. And subsequently, that led to circumstances where it's alleged that Mr Cleary disclosed information about Australia spying on Timor-Leste during negotiations around uh, oil and gas in the Timor Sea.
2: And we'll come to, to Bernard Kaliri, who's also been charged shortly. But but the identity of this former security operative witness, Kay, has always been kept secret. Did you see him in court last Friday? No.
3: So the courtroom uh, had a, a black partitioned area where Witness K was sitting. We heard his voice very briefly when he pleaded guilty and that was the first time his voice has been heard in in open court, but otherwise his identity remains secret. Um, There were CCDV cameras in the courtroom had been taped up. The windows had been taped up. It was quite a a Kafkaesque setting.
2: We do have a Public Interest Disclosure Act from 2013. Did Witness K have any alternative but to plead guilty?
3: Witness K had no defence available to him under the Public Interest Disclosure Act, the Federal Whistleblowing Law, or really any other law uh, in relation to this disclosure. And that's despite the fact that we at the Human Rights Law Centre and and many other civil society organisations think that what Witness K and Bernard Cleary uh, have done or in Bernard Cleary's case, are alleged to have done, uh, was clearly in the public interest. So Australia's misconduct towards Timor was clearly reprehensible and inappropriate and arguably unlawful. And yet we have this incredible situation where the people who uh, spoke up about that wrongdoing are being prosecuted. Uh, and you know, in this case, now Witness K has been sentenced to a suspended sentence. Bernard Cleary remains on trial. And yet those who uh, perpetrated the wrongdoing uh, have uh, you know faced no scrutiny
2: and the reason that he had no alternative but to plead guilty is because our our whistleblowing legislation our public interest disclosure act has what a carve out for people who work in in Australian security agencies. In other words, there's no possibility of them availing themselves to this kind of public interest disclosure defence.
3: That's correct. So our federal whistleblowing law provides no protections for intelligence officers or even other public servants speaking up about intelligence information are going uh, to the media, going to a parliamentarian, or otherwise going public, and that's at that's at odds with regimes in other jurisdictions. You know, appropriately balancing secrecy and transparency, the need to protect national security law. That that is not easy. I, I concede, but in other countries, they've found a much more appropriate balance. In some countries, there's a, a public interest defence. In these sort of cases, in others, there are avenues for intelligence officers to go to parliament, for example, to go to intelligence oversight committees, for example. But in Australia, we have none of that. And that leaves us in this situation where an intelligence officer could witness egregious human rights violations. They could witness cold-blooded murder other than speaking up internally or to an internal oversight agency in the, in the Inspector General, they have no ability to safely, securely and lawfully blow the whistle.
2: So, are you saying that Australia is out of step with similar like-minded democracies, places like, say, the UK, USA, Canada, maybe parts of Europe –
3: That's correct. The Pit Act is in urgent need of overhaul in relation to this issue and more broadly. Five years ago, the federal government was told by an independent review that the Pitt Act needed reform, that the experience of whistleblowers under the Pit Act was an unhappy one, and five years later, we still have not seen draft law.
2: But you do acknowledge that it is complicated when it comes to security, national security. It is a complicated balancing. In sentencing witness K, what did Magistrate Glenn Theekson say?
3: The magistrate acknowledged the need for a deterrent effect in the sentencing, and also acknowledged the fact that that witness K had spoken up out of a sense of justice. And I, I acknowledge that this is not an easy balancing act, not an easy accommodation, but in Australia we have not balanced these interests appropriately. We're out of step with the way other countries approach these issues. You know, intelligence officers and agencies can't be above the law and yet we don't have a safety valve for people to speak up about wrongdoing that they perpetrate. No, these things are done in our name. Australia's decision to spy on Timor-Leste An impoverished neighbour that was rebuilding from a war of independence. Our decision to spy on them for commercial gain, that was done in our name. And we only know about it thanks to these brave individuals. That was in the public interest and there's no public interest in prosecuting whistleblowers like Witness K and like Bernard Cleary. This has really been a dark saga in Australian
2: history. But could you have the best motivations in the world and still endanger national security, still in perhaps endanger the lives of uh, security operatives or other, you know, very important things that need to be protected.
3: We're not calling for open slather that anyone, any intelligence officer should be able to speak up publicly about anything. Of course, there need to be appropriate safeguards. But what we're saying is the current accommodation is not adequate. Or appropriate and doesn't have that safety valve.
2: And very briefly, uh, witness case lawyer Bernard Kaliri, a very highly respected Canberra lawyer, indeed a, a former ACT Attorney General, facing similar charges, pleading not guilty. His case recently came back before the courts and it's all about whether or not his trial can be effectively heard in secret.
3: That's correct. So Bernard Cleary is currently challenging a secrecy order that was imposed on his trial. He's challenging that in the uh, ACT Court of Appeal. Uh, we're awaiting the judgment in that case, which is expected to be delivered in the weeks ahead. It's almost certain that case will then go to the High Court for the High Court to determine the secrecy to be imposed on Cleary's trial. And we face the you know, really repugnant situation that the High Court, in hearing that secrecy appeal, will have to hear it in secret. They have no discretion there. The National Security Information Act requires the High Court when hearing that appeal to hear it in total secrecy behind closed doors. There's no public interest in that.
2: And it looks like the High Court will perhaps, will most likely be the ultimate arbiter about how to balance security and transparency in these kinds of trials. Kieran Pender, Senior Lawyer with the Human Rights Law Centre, thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thanks, Damien.
0: You're listening to The Law Report on ABC Radio National with Damien Carrick. Available anywhere, anytime via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: All around the world, it's Refugee Week. It's a time to acknowledge the incredible hardships faced by refugees and to reflect on how to resettle them in countries like Australia. The Australian government is currently considering whether or not to adopt some kind of version of Canada's unique private sponsorship program. Since the 1970s, over 300,000 refugees have settled in Canada under this scheme, which is separate and distinct from the government's refugee program. Syrian refugee Zakaria Al-Sawa, together with his wife Rania and infant child, are among the 300,000. No
1: words to thank them. They welcomed us and worked hard with us, like, side to side uh, to just improve the skills, uh, the knowledge. Uh, yeah, so some kind of, like, a challenging time for us and for them as well.
2: The family arrived at Toronto Airport on the 19th of February 2016 and were immediately taken to their new home in the township of Mulma, which is several hours' drive north of Toronto.
1: So basically, yeah, they provided housing for us and they provided also like uh, support for a whole year in terms of like living, food, uh, whatever. And also like just they tried as well, like just to uh, join us with the society at that time, I remember. And they were just kind people. They provided sort of practical support, like English lessons as well? Yes, exactly. There was uh, some uh, volunteers. They used to come on a daily basis. And uh, we're still in touch with them, uh, actually. And uh, they got improving our English. They worked hard on us. That's obvious.
2: And uh, I really thank them about that. So in many ways, this community of people in in Mulma, they became your friends and they became, in some ways, your new family.
1: Exactly, yeah. Like uh, Debbie always like call us.
2: uh, Actually, they are more than family, more than family. More than family. The Debbie that Zakaria is referring to is Debbie Ebanks Schlums. She's an artist based in the township of Mulma.
0: I live in the countryside, uh, there's forest around me, there's fields around me, um, so it's, it's fairly sparse, sort of an area of, I don't know, 1,000 or 2,000 hectares with little hamlets, not even villages, and we're about 3,000 people in the township.
2: So how does this private sponsorship program work?
0: So you need five people to sponsor in the community, and they're often within a church or other religious organization or community, usually culturally related. And these five individuals have to financially sponsor, have to be are financially liable for the for the refugees that they're sponsoring. So you have to go through a sort of vetting process where you demonstrate that you have enough money to sponsor them. And that was pretty much all we had to demonstrate at the time and we had to fill out a number of forms to say that we would be legally responsible for these refugees if they came to Canada. And within that one year period, they were not allowed to go onto the welfare system. They couldn't be on social assistance. They had to be supported by us.
2: And so your group, it wasn't church-based. It was all cultural group-based. It was just community-based?
0: Yeah. In fact, it was (laughs) artist-based. So we ended up sponsoring a family of three. And for that, we needed, I think it was $24,000 Canadian. And we raised... Almost thirty thousand.
2: And how did you raise that thirty thousand dollars?
0: Over a year, so it was it was a hard struggle because nobody was interested in the issue, and and many didn't want uh, refugees coming to the area either. I thought it was just ridiculous, and we had we decided to have a large. Community dinner where we invited top of the line chefs uh, who actually lived in the area, and they volunteered their time and effort. And a lot of farms donated food. And in the meantime, there was the unfortunate incident of Alan Kurdi, the young Syrian toddler who was drowned, and his body was found on shore. And he had a Canadian connection. And so because of that Canadian connection, his family was trying to be sponsored to come to Canada from relatives it sort of galvanised the whole Canadian population. And so all of a sudden we had interest, mass interest, and were able to raise $28,000 with one event.
2: The tragedy of, the, of those images of the body of the young Syrian child on a beach in the Aegean really galvanised public awareness in Canada. You focused on this family of three. What is the financial investment that the host community must make?
0: So the, the most important thing is to provide housing. The other is transportation, because there is no public transportation in the rural area that we had to have. I think we had about 20 volunteers helping to drive the family to wherever they needed to go. So it could be grocery shopping, eventually English as a second language, ESL classes, any bureaucratic things that they had to do. They had to be driven.
2: And can you describe how they fared and some of the challenges they faced when they moved to your area?
0: to our in our area where you couldn't drive on your own they always had to ask somebody to drive them so that was not ideal that was a challenge it was a challenge finding people to drive and in the beginning there also wasn't any esl classes in our area so there was just like going from one town to another town to another town and then getting that in order to get them to esl classes that was a challenge Oh my goodness, that was a lot of driving.
2: <laughs> I think Australian listeners will get that because our distances are big too and our cities are big and spread out like yours and, and, our, and our regions are kind of, uh, the distances are huge as well. Oh
0: yeah, so our main goal was to, for them to get like a driver's license. So they, when they did move to, to their own apartment, they ended up getting a car, a used car and then were driving. So they were very much independent after they yeah, were on their own.
2: What does the government provide?
0: There's health care and there's free dental care.
2: Now, Now, tell me, how successful do you see this experience for the family and for the community, your community?
0: Yeah, our community was really proud. So I think it was a big deal for the community, for the family. They were they excelled we were scared we were like oh my god you know like that's the risk because everybody thinks like all the naysayers are always like they're going to be on social assistance they're you know immigrants are always on social assistance which is like extremely offensive you know i'm an immigrant as well but they were so determined like they're all hard workers you know just they're just ordinary people and they want to earn their own living and be independent and they, they're so grateful they <laughs> and They came back a year afterwards and they were like, we're so happy. The way things turned out because they were like we're completely independent and we're so happy. So um, that was great to hear.
2: They, they stayed in your community for twelve months. They moved to that bigger town, but not not too far away. And it sounds like you are still, you and and the group and the community are still very much involved and and invested in this family. And there's there's a lot of love uh, there, both going both ways.
0: For sure. Yeah. No, there's a lot of
2: love there. Zachariah and his wife, Rania, are flourishing. Very quickly, the family found their feet and became financially independent. Zachariah is now completing his architecture studies while he works in the industry.
1: Yes, yes. And also, like, uh, meanwhile, like, I worked for uh, a company, it's called uh, iViva Homes in Barrie City. So for three years, and I had lots of experience and I improved my skills.
2: And when you arrived in in Canada, I think uh, you and your wife uh, Rania had one child, and now you have three children.
1: Yes, uh, yeah. Now, right now, Yahya got uh, six years old. Mira is uh, four years old. Zain is two years old. And uh,
2: you're all now Canadian citizens. Yes, So we just got it last year. Ah,
4: congratulations!
2: Congratulations.
4: I think a versionless model could work here and, in my view, should work here.
2: Professor Peter Shergold, the Chancellor of Western Sydney University, he's also the New South Wales Coordinator-General for Resettlement. He was recently asked by the federal government to review the integration, employment and settlement outcomes for refugees and humanitarian entrants. He's a big fan of the Canadian private sponsorship program.
4: You know, there are a very significant number of Australians who do want to lend a helping hand, Uh, communities who would welcome a number of refugee families to come and settle, and this is a way to get them involved. And to the extent they're involved, that clearly helps the whole process of integration into Australian society. I think it could be very valuable in addition to the existing special humanitarian programme. We don't want to take... A chunk out of the existing numbers, which is right now 13,750 a year, I think there should be a small program in addition to that. Because otherwise what happens is it looks like it's just the sort of government cost shifting from providing the settlement services itself to getting communities to do so.
2: I was speaking with uh, a woman in Canada who was uh, part of a group and she said when her group of five people uh, sponsored a Syrian family of three, two parents and a child, they had to put up 27000 Canadian dollars up front. They had to raise that amount and show the government that they were able to support this family. Do you imagine a similar scheme here where community groups would have to raise that money up front?
4: Well, what we do know is... Some years back, about uh, five or six years ago, the Australian government did actually set up or up as a pilot a community support program. So something similar. One of the difficulties with that is the visa application charges for the sponsors were too high. But more than that, what really didn't work with that pilot is that it in effect became a refugee family reunification stream. In other words, refugee families who are here, who frankly didn't have much money between them, would go into all sorts of debt in order to to raise the monies for visa applications and to support what was extended members of their family. Now, that is understandable, but it's not what a community program is meant to be. So I think in Australia, we need to think that what we want to do is have a place-based community program where people in a locality have come together. Community leaders, the schools, local government you know, and, and business and in and employment and say we would be willing to sponsor a family. If you set the prices too high, uh, the cost too high, I don't think it will work. And my view is that the Commonwealth should be willing to provide some of those support services, but where the community is really expected to come in and take on that role of showing the family how they go shopping, where to go to a real estate agent, how to use the gp system so it would be a mixture i think of what the commonwealth government are provided and my view is visa costs should be low and what the community sponsors should be committed to provide
2: in canada i understand that that twenty-seven thousand dollars went towards a monthly budget to support the refugee family so that they weren't dependent on welfare they were entitled to access to Canadian equivalent of Medicare or or free health and and dental care, but they weren't entitled to welfare payments. How would you imagine that working here in Australia?
4: We'd need to talk about the balance, but the balance would be the sponsoring community would take on a significant portion of the services which the Commonwealth, I think, presently provides through humanitarian support.
2: I'm really interested in your role um, as New South Wales Coordinator General for Settlement. You're obviously concerned about the outcomes as well as the, the numbers. I'm wondering what are the outcomes in Canada when it comes to things like employment?
4: By actively involving community or indeed employers or universities in the process, you are much more likely to get successful integration of newcomers into society. And I think the Canadian model has absolutely shown that.
2: In other words, I, I, I believe that something like less than 20% of refugees are in ongoing employment after 18 months here in Australia and often working below their skill level. But the figures in Canada for those on the private community sponsorship scheme are better than those for on the government sponsorship Correct.
4: And usually when the community is involved, it does involve often, you know, employers and businesses who are able to provide employment. You've got communities who want to support refugees to settle. And so you don't get that sense that, you know, refugees are somehow being imposed on your uh, community.
2: Now, this you're talking here about assisting refugees in a different way who have arrived in Australia with refugee visas, as opposed to people who've arrived as asylum seekers and who are trying to now obtain refugee status, and I'm thinking like the the very high-profile uh, Moorahappan family now in Perth, who were embraced by the Queensland town of uh, Biloela um, before they were sent to Christmas Island. Do you see any kind of role for this kind of community assistance program for those sorts of people who are asylum seekers going through the process of applying for refugee status?
4: Well, it absolutely stands out as testimony to how a community can get behind, in effect, the sponsorship of a family and welcome what they add to a community. I mean, it's a great example of it working. Having said that, the proposal I'm looking at is working with the UNHCR to be able to bring refugees formally into uh, the country, so they wouldn't be asylum seekers. This is people accepted under our humanitarian program. I see no reason that our existing program could not be supplemented by trials of a number of additional different programs, including this community sponsorship.
2: Peter Shergold says some groundwork has already been done to prepare for such a scheme and a pilot could be up and running by July next year, pandemic willing. Former commercial lawyer Lisa Button is the Executive Director of the Community Refugee Sponsorship Initiative, an organisation that's working with a range of groups that would love to embrace refugees in a Canadian-style bear hug.
5: Yeah, well, People from all over the country have written to us um, and expressed an interest in um, supporting refugees in this sort of active, hands-on way from you know major cities to small towns. You know, we've got groups and individuals in far north Queensland, in southern Tasmania, in WA. Uh, I think there's even a few in Alice Springs. So geographically, they're really from far and wide. What
2: do you see these local groups doing for families or individuals?
5: Or individuals, yeah. It's it's a very holistic approach. So it usually begins with meeting someone as they arrive in Australia, but having sort of welcomed them on their initial arrival into the country, it's then about walking the journey with them for the next 12 months or so. So, you know, helping people find and furnish a home um, and orientate them in the local community, looking at what their employment skills might be in helping them find employment in in a relevant um, occupation or helping them succeed in education, perhaps obtain a driver's license. Um, And then there's also just that whole layer of, you know, friendship and social interaction, just, you know, providing people with a social network from day one in the country. Now,
2: I understand that in the Canadian scheme, Community groups have to raise substantial amounts of money to support refugees during their first year. I think uh, I spoke to a representative of a group in, in Ontario and they had to raise 27000 Canadian dollars. They had to sort of provide that as evidence that the family wouldn't be a burden on the Canadian welfare system for the first 12 months. Would you anticipate groups raising similar sorts of funds to, to do similar sorts of financial support?
5: I think that depends on how closely the Australian government wants to emulate the Canadian system. There's actually a few different programs within even the Canadian program, and a similar program has cropped up in the UK, which has a lower price tag for sponsor groups, and there's you know there are now pro- programs in Ireland and New Zealand's had one. So it's really a choice of policymakers as to what the government's prepared to pay for and what it asks the community. To pay for. You know, we, we don't um, obviously have have the answer to that. we' we're, we're anxiously waiting news from the government as to uh, what might be possible in the future. but I think it's fair to say there is like there would be likely to be a financial component, but then also this very strong component of uh, practical support and connection and um, and friendship, my fingers are crossed
2: lisa button executive director of the community refugee sponsorship initiative now for this story i did contact the office of the minister for immigration alex Hawke, to see what the government's thinking is on these proposals i have no new information for you about that that's the show for this week a big thanks to producer anita barrow and to sound engineer matthew crawford i'm damien carrick talk to you next time with more law